0: Hello and welcome to Asbury's podcast, my name is Forrest DeVinny. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury, and uh, today is going to be a little bit different. Uh, I am once again going to do a special edition of our podcast. Now I don't, I don't know right now, off the top of my head, if I'm going to bother with doing uh, an episode this week of like our regular podcast. Um, I might, (laughs) it just remains to be seen if I'm going to have the time. But what I wanted to do for this is, um, many of you will know that I spent the last three weeks teaching a class that I just called Methodism 101 uh, on Sunday afternoons. That wrapped up uh, this week. And kind of like a, the same thing I did with our human sexuality class, I want to go ahead and try and condense this into a podcast for those of you who weren't able to come or who maybe missed a couple of weeks, um, or if who just want to be able to kind of go back and reread or I guess you wouldn't be reading because it's a podcast, but just kind of review some of the things that were talked about. Um, so that's what we're going to do. Now, um, let me just briefly talk about the, the reasoning behind all of this and why we did it and why I thought it was so important to do. Um, and I'll, I'll say right off the bat, um, this is, even though much of what I'm going to say has clear connections and implications to um, current events in Methodism and Asbury's um, discernment as we consider our future, Um, this is something that I would have been... Sorry, my watch decided to pick up what I was doing and repeat it back to me. Um, This is something that we would have, I would have been teaching no matter what. Uh, I, I think it's really, really important. It's, it's been on my heart to do this for a very long time and for reasons that are about to become very, very clear. Now, the reason I did it is because um, one thing that's going to, especially as we go through this podcast, you're going to start to realize um, there's a whole lot of things that are distinct to Methodism, that are really core parts of what Methodism is all about, that, um, that you are not going to recognize even if you have been a lifelong United Methodist, now the reason for that, well, it's complicated, but but suffice it to say that that the modern Methodist churches and and the worst offender right now, while well, the two worst offenders are the British Methodist Church and the American United Methodist Church, um, those are separate denominations, by the way, um, have by and large moved away from genuine Methodism is I guess the best way to say that and, and here's what I mean uh, and, I'm, and I'm saying this because one of the things that I have heard over and over again well is, is things like um, people in, in the midst of the discernment process saying well I want to stay in the UMC because I want to be Methodist I've always been Methodist well that doesn't you know you can be Methodist of that being United Methodist. There's other Methodist denominations. There's the Free Methodist. There's the Wesleyan Church. There's the Church of the Nazarene. Um, then there's worldwide plenty of Methodist denominations that aren't United Methodist, like the Cuban Methodist Church, which is its own thing. There's even the Association of Independent Methodist Churches, which I kind of have an issue with because I think a fundamental part of Methodism is not being independent. But that's neither here nor there. Um, and so the question. This raises the issue that very clearly a whole lot of people in the United Methodist Church don't actually understand what Methodism is. They just assume that being a United Methodist is what Methodism is, and that's just not true. Um, you also hear things like um, when we talk about doctrine and theology, people say, well, that doesn't seem very Methodist. Well, if you had ever read any of Wesley's work, you would know that it is extremely Methodist to, to talk about doctrine and theology because Wesley was very insistent on proper doctrine and proper theology and, and, and very clearly, very firmly insistent on holding people to account to the doctrine and theology of the church. It was extremely important to him. That's all throughout his work and his writings. It's all throughout the history of the early Methodist church. Um, and you have, when, if you were here when, uh, when Leah Gregory was here in back in February and she mentioned, the uh, the catechism that the global methodist church has been working on and she said you know people, people re, will respond to that by saying well catechism doesn't seem very methodist and um you know she mentioned that she has her her grandfather's old catechism which i was from the you know, 20th century um and, and i would actually go a step further and point out that i have here in my office a copy of john wesley's catechism wesley had a catechism it was a revision of the anglican catechism which he distributed uh, to the Methodist Church and in particular to the Methodists in the United States. So things like catechism and doctrine and theology were always actually a core part of what it meant to be Methodist and, and what the methodist I mean they were they were a part of the method which gave Methodism its name um, and all of this is a roundabout way of saying that by and large in in, in the modern American Methodist Church and in particular in the United Methodist Church here in the U.S., um, we have done a really poor job of actually being Methodist and teaching people what it means to be Methodist. Most of our pastors do not know Wesleyan theology. And I'm saying that from experience. Most of them do not have a firm grasp of Wesleyan theology. And that's largely because our seminaries don't do a particularly good job of teaching it, it's not actually a requirement for ordination in the United Methodist Church. Um, I went to a, a seminary at Southern Methodist University. Um, there was no core class that you were required to take which would teach you Wesleyan theology. Those classes were all electives. If you wanted to study Wesley's 50 canonical sermons, which are supposed to be, supposed to be, The uh, defining doctrinal documents of the church. Um, If you wanted to study those, that was an elective. And I took it, and it was a small elective. There were maybe 10 to 12 of us in there at most on a good day. You weren't required to study Wesleyan theology. You were required to take one class in Methodist history, which meant you had one semester to go do a brief overview of 300 years of Methodist history. But you were never required to study Methodist theology. We had one class that covered both Methodist polity, the governing of our church, right the administration, the the, 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 bureauc- the bureaucracy of the church, and it covered Methodist doctrine. So you spent half a semester on on Methodist doctrine and half a semester then on the bureaucracy of the church and how to function within it. That was what was required. Um, and And yeah, I, so you you, You can begin to see how so many of our clergy go through seminary, go through the entire ordination process without ever actually learning Wesleyan theology, without really learning anything about um, distinctive Wesleyan Methodist practices, and so then they don't teach them to their church because they don't know them, they're not familiar with them. Um, So there has been for a very long time a push within the United Methodist Church to reclaim those things, and in fact... um, That's a major factor in all the things that are going on right now. Before there was a Global Methodist Church, there were uh, people within the UMC who were parts of groups like the Wesleyan Covenant Association. And before there was a Wesleyan Covenant Association, there was a Methodist renewal movement. Um, And despite the slander that's been put out about those groups, none of which is true, um, the primary purpose for which they existed was, was always actually to reclaim the original practices and and teachings that made Methodism distinct. Um, and so a major reason why there is now division happening within our church is that those renewal efforts were, uh, were just flat-out opposed at every step of the way. There was no... It, 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 you know, it became clear to people who were trying to bring about renewal in the church and reclaim some of Wesley's teachings that uh, they, they weren't going to be allowed to, essentially. And the result is that we have a lot of people who call themselves Methodists but don't actually know what Methodism is about. Uh, And they don't know the history of Methodism. Now, what I'm going to talk about today is not going to do much in the way of history because time is limited. Uh, But I'm going to talk about some of the things that make Methodist theology distinct uh, and some of the things that that we really need to be working to reclaim and and grab a hold of, no matter what happens. These are important. Um, If you would like, by the way... Um, a really good, and I'll recommend some other books here in a minute, but if you want a, a, a short, very good biography of John Wesley to get a feel for um, some of the history here, there's a short little biography. It's less than 200 pages. It's called A Real Christian Colon The Life of John Wesley uh, by Kenneth J. Collins. and You can just buy that on Amazon. It's a short little book. Uh, now, if you would like, before we get into the podcast, uh, if you would like to have some books on hand um, that will go into much more detail uh, about Methodist theology and and the teachings of John Wesley. Um, There are a couple things I recommend. For a lot of detail, there's a four-volume set. It's literally just titled John Wesley's Teachings. It's four volumes. It's by Thomas Oden. Um, it's, It's very detailed, but it is written for... Uh, the layperson. It's a a fantastic resource um, because it it does not it goes far beyond just the things that were distinctive to Methodism and it also includes John Wesley's teachings on like the basics of Christian doctrine, the things that are sort of universally agreed upon um, across the board within Christianity. So it's a really, really good resource really interesting. If you want something smaller that's more accessible, that's, that's uh, a bit of an easier read. There's a very short little book, easy to read. It's called Wesley for Armchair Theologians. Uh, and it's written by uh, my former professor, the, the late, great Dr. Billy Abraham. May he rest in peace. Uh, and it's, it's a fantastic sort of brief overview of Wesley's teachings and his thoughts, on, on, on kind of giving the highlights of it and how it worked. Uh, those are uh, probably some of the best things you can read. If you really want to do a deep dive on Wesley, you, you should really look into his, um, his, his his canonical sermons. This is a series of uh, about 50, ser- 50 sermons. It's a lot, but it, but um, these things are, these are the sermons in which he preached what he came to believe were the sort of core teachings of the church that were most important and expounded upon them, and that's why they're the canonical sermons, because they're important. Um you can find those printed in a lot of different volumes. You'll see them titled as uh, Sermons on Several Occasions sometimes. Uh, there's a few different volumes out there, but they're all good. Um, you can also go to um, seedbed.com and look at the John Wesley Collection, which will have a bunch of those sermons as well. So, <clears throat> we're going to move into uh, Wesleyan Thought and Theology. and I want to give... I am going to skip over some of the things that were taught in the class because I, I feel like they're, I could spend too much time on some places that, that aren't really hugely important. One thing I do want to really draw out and highlight <coughs> are two things about the characteristics of God that Wesley upheld and taught. Now, these aren't necessarily distinct to Wesley, but they are a really important part of his theology, and they are something that bears repeating. So one, one is the idea that God is eternal. God is intimately present in every moment. There was no time when God was not. There There will be no time when God will not be. We are invited into a never-ending relationship with the eternal God. A happy life of eternal blessedness. Or we can reject God and live out the misery of missing out on all that is eternally good. And I, I, that wording is really important to me because that is that is Wesley's conception of what happens to those who reject God. They live out the misery of missing out on all that is eternally good. Um, and this is the choice that we are making in every moment. Human existence is deciding every moment toward the joy of eternal life or the despair of eternal emptiness. It's this constant choosing The reality of standing on the edge of eternity that gives human life meaning. God is eternal. Now, God is also omnipresent, meaning God is present everywhere. Now, this is an important point because Western Protestantism has tended to embrace deism which is a, an idea that pops up in the Enlightenment era, but it's this idea that God is actually kind of distant. God created the world and then backed off and let the world run itself. But that's not at all what the Bible teaches. It's certainly not what Wesley taught. Wesley taught that God is present in every square inch of creation, just as he is present in every moment of time. God is right here with us. He doesn't just create the physical world. He sustains the physical world. He is present in every part of it. And just as God's power and presence know no boundaries, God's goodness and God's mercy know no boundaries. God is infinitely good. And therefore, the most fitting response to his goodness is a grateful life spent communicating that goodness to others. God alone is incomparably holy. And in his presence, we become acutely aware of our own, Holiness. This is what we call our conscience. God allows us to feel the difference between our goodness and His incomparable infinite goodness. These are the characteristics of God which shape the rest of Wesley's thought. So now we're going to move into how we know God, how we know about God, how we Interpret the will of God for our lives. Now this is a big deal because there is a massive misconception within uh, modern Methodism that has to be addressed. You may have heard of the uh, so-called Wesleyan quadrilateral. um, The idea that we use scripture, tradition, reason, and experience to know about God. To know about God's will for our lives and to interpret how we should live and how we should behave. Now, you will not find anywhere in any of Wesley's writings the idea of the quadrilateral. It's not present at all. It's not just that he doesn't name it, it's that that entire concept of approaching things that way is not present in Wesley's writings. It's not present in his sermons, it's not present in his letters, not present in his teachings. This concept was first outlined by Dr. Albert Outler, who was a professor at Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University, Uh, in a lecture he gave in the 1960s, I believe. And he would later come to regret it, because people fundamentally misinterpreted and twisted around what he said. And so what you have now is a whole lot of people, including the vast majority of Methodist pastors, who believe that um, Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience are given equal weight, in our approach to God and how we know about God and how we know how to behave and how we live. Um, Which is not at all what Albert Outler meant. And if you, I mean, I've read the lecture notes and it's pretty clear that's not what he was saying. Um, what, What Outler meant is that Wesley used tradition, reason, and experience to interpret Scripture. But he was very clear, as is John Wesley, abundantly, explicitly clear. That scripture takes primacy over those other three. So if your tradition, reason, or experience contradicts scripture, you know automatically that your tradition, reason, or experience is wrong and that scripture is right. Now this really matters. We are flawed humans. Humans do not reason well. I remember my my first day studying philosophy... In college, the professor uh, I was I was studying under gave us a had us do a little exercise and I won't go into detail, but it was it was designed basically to show us that humans do not reason well. And this was a philosophy professor whose entire job is teaching us how to reason. And he says, Look, we don't do this well. This is why we have to have classes on it. We do not reason well and even and, and we have to accept that even after we're educated, we're gonna make mistakes because we don't reason well. So we don't reason well. Our tradition could be flawed. Our experiences could also be quite flawed. Scripture gives us an objective way to evaluate the truth of everything else. It grounds us. It gives us a touchpoint in reality that we know is true. It's firm. It's stable. Unlike everything else. If Scripture is not the primary authority... We're in deep trouble because if we, if Scripture is not the primary authority, if Scripture can be countermanded by our tradition, our reason, or our experience, we have no actual way of genuinely knowing God. We have no way to evaluate uh, anything else. Everything will be foggy and muddy and we'll be constantly lost in the weeds. And that really would actually raise some deep questions. If Scripture is not trustworthy, if Scripture is not the primary, authoritative, reliable way in which we can evaluate everything else, um, that would suggest that God doesn't care about us all that much because he hasn't given us a reliable way of knowing him. And of course, it's not true. So Wesley really believes in the primacy of Scripture He really believes in the authority of Scripture. He referred to the written word of Scripture as the whole and sole rule of faith. Nothing else is necessary. Anything which contradicts Scripture is false. He believes Scripture is the inspired word of God, so God used his human agents to write the Scriptures under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Which means that these scriptures are the clearest and most reliable means we have of determining God's will. So they provide our rule of life, they provide our morals. We measure everything else against scripture. Now Wesley held firmly to the uh, literal sense of scripture. Unless, Unless taking the literal sense would be irrational or unworthy of God's moral character. So he recognized the importance of the literal historical understandings of some passages, particularly as illuminated by their historical context, while also recognizing that other passages are clearly metaphorical or allegorical. He never looked for hidden meanings, um, but he did recognize that at times some passages were best interpreted as not literal. Um, His instruction, by the way, to to his Methodists and his preachers was to, uh, and this is a quote, uh, to depart ever so little from the plain, literal meaning of any text taken in connection with that context. So text and context require each other. And he means context as in the entire Bible. You, you read each text of the Bible in the context of the whole. So scripture is the best interpreter of scripture. A key feature of Wesley's approach to interpreting scripture is to use Clear passages to illuminate obscure passages. So our interpretation of Scripture requires an understanding of the whole, not just the parts. We can't simply pull out selected texts, interpret them on their own, based on our understanding, and, and then uh, base our understanding of Scripture and on God of these little isolated snippets of Scripture. Scripture is a unified whole, and we need all of it in order to understand any of it. So the Old and New Testament illuminate each other. The Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament, and the New Testament shines light on the Old Testament. We read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Now, Leslie was clear that the church, and this is a a quote, the church is to be judged by Scripture and not Scripture by the church. We don't have... The right or the authority to go back and determine which parts of Scripture are authoritative and which are not. Um, now, to be clear, uh, because sometimes people will dismiss John Wesley as not a great theologian or or, or a country preacher. You know, you know, he's just that guy who went and preach on the streets. Now, here's the thing. Wesley was an Oxford scholar. He was one of the most brilliant theologians, probably within the last thousand years. Now he never wrote a, a sat down and wrote a book of systematic theology, but his theology worked out in his sermons is extremely well thought out, extremely intelligent. Wesley could read and write in Italian, Spanish, French, Dutch, German, Latin, Hebrew, and Greek. When he read the Bible for his own edification, day in, day out, he read it in the original languages. And he wrote a Bible commentary, it's called Explanatory Notes, he's got one for the New Testament, one for the Old Testament. And um, you really ought to buy it, it's it's phenomenal, I've actually got a digital version of it that I use. One thing you see in there, time and time again, is that Wesley in many places corrects the translation in the King James Version. He goes through it and says, well, they got it wrong here, Here's here's what it really should say. And you also will see, particularly in the Old Testament, that he has a very, very good grasp of the ancient historical and cultural contexts of those books. He understands that really, really well, much better than you would think a 19th century, an 18th century preacher would understand that. But he is extremely well-versed in the cultures of the ancient Middle East. He is extremely well-versed in Jewish culture. He can read and write the Hebrew and the Greek. So he knows his stuff much better than most of us do. He is a brilliant, brilliant theologian. Um, And his thoughts on Scripture should be considered extremely authoritative. Now, he believed, so again, another quote, Scriptures are the touchstone whereby Christians examine all real or supposed revelations. In other words, every time we believe we've, that God has revealed something to us, we go back and we judge it by Scripture. And if it contradicts Scripture, then we know it wasn't really from God. So Scripture is what grounds us. Scripture is what helps us stay firmly rooted in the truth And we evaluate everything else that comes our way in the light of Scripture, because it is the most authoritative thing that we have in our lives. It is the clearest way we have of communicating with God and of allowing God to communicate with us. Now, he believed firmly that just as the Holy Spirit is at work in the mind of the writers the Holy Spirit is also at work in the heart of the reader. So as we read Scripture, the Spirit works within us to help us understand God's self-revelation. So that's Scripture, and it's far and away the most important. Then we have tradition. And we won't spend much time on this because there's not much to say. Um, but when Wesley talks about tradition, and when Albert Outler talked about Wesley's use of tradition in interpreting Scripture, this was not... Um, this was not like our tradition, the Methodist tradition. It wasn't the Anglican tradition. It is the, the unchanging apostolic tradition of scripture teaching, dating back to the earliest church. Wesley placed a huge emphasis on the teaching of the early church fathers, and in particular the Eastern church fathers, which is why there is, there is some Eastern Orthodox flavor to Methodist theology. Um, and while he didn't consider them infallible, he considered them invaluable. Um, now, this matters. This, this is the tradition of the universal church dating back 2,000 years. And it matters precisely because billions upon billions of Christians have read the same texts. And they have come to the same conclusions about what those texts mean. And that is true across all kinds of different cultural boundaries, different levels of education, different periods in history. Simply put, that does not happen unless unless the Holy Spirit has empowered the body of Christ to read and interpret Scripture properly. The authority of the apostolic tradition comes precisely from the fact that it transcends cultural ideas, it transcends national boundaries, it transcends time. So we can rest assured that the traditional interpretations of Scripture among the church are authoritative, because they are not influenced by one particular culture, they are not influenced by a historical period They remain consistent across all of those boundaries. Which means it's really important for us to pay attention and to read the works of the early church fathers, to read the works of theologians from other countries and other cultures, um, to, to gather in all of that and let that color our reading of scripture. So that's tradition. Now we have reason. Now, Wesley believed reason is God's gift, that we are intended to use our reason for God's glory, and that religion is fundamentally rational. He also believed that reason and scripture are linked, that we use reason in our interpretation and application of scripture, but that reason alone is not enough. Reason can't create faith, it can't give hope and love. In other words, reason does not, on its own, lead to virtue. So he wanted to keep reason in its proper place. Otherwise, we'll either overvalue it or we'll undervalue it. Reason is neither the ultimate judge of revelation. You don't get to use reason to determine the validity of Scripture. Nor is reason to be ignored because it is a balance to excessive emotion. So, you have on the one hand, reason is used to balance out overly emotional reactions to things, overly emotional reactions to Scripture and to faith and to experiences. But at the same time, reason is below scripture. You don't get to use reason to evaluate the validity of God's revelation. And properly understood, reason illuminates God's revelation. Now we come to experience. And this is where a lot of people get it really wrong. Because experience is not about just your everyday life experience. It's not. It is specifically your personal experience with God. God's presence in your life, and, and most importantly, your experience of God communicating to you through Scripture. And in particular, Wesley believe that reason and experience work together to give us the assurance of salvation. That feeling of the heart being strangely warmed. So what he's really talking about is our personal inward experience of divine grace. It's the spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are saved that experience now this is important experience confirms but does not override scripture it confirms scripture it does not override scripture it is the internal recognition that I am a child of God so there you have it this is this is how Wesley really, This is how Methodists are supposed to approach things. It's not a quadrilateral. It It is the use of reason within its proper place, the internal experience of divine grace, and the great apostolic tradition of the church to help us not just interpret Scripture, but apply it to our everyday lives. But Scripture has primacy. Now, Wesley had a very high doctrine of creation. He emphasized the goodness of the created world we lived in. Everything God created was good before the fall. He even went so far as to suggest that before the fall, there were no unpleasant insects. So uh, he would say, you know, mosquitoes are the result of human sin, and I'm inclined to agree with him. Um, All evil is the result of human sin, but evil did not originally exist. Humans are responsible for all evil. And even though we are fallen, we are sustained by God in every moment of our lives. God sustains all of creation constantly. Nothing exists independently of God. If God forgot about us for a moment, we'd cease to exist. Now even though God designs, creates, and sustains all of creation, he gives us freedom within it. Freedom is a gift and we then have to live with the consequences of abusing freedom. Now, we often will wonder why God doesn't simply eliminate evil. But the thing is that virtue and vice are connected. They are both expressions of freedom, and to have one, you must have the possibility of the other. So God allows evil to continue for a while because he desires for his people to be free. So we are created good, but we are corrupted by original sin. Intergenerational sin has distorted human nature, twisting it out of shape so that we are, to quote Wesley, inclined to evil continually. Now you can see this play out in human history pretty clearly. It's not hard to spot the ways in which idolatry and pride and sensuality have dominated our history. Evil is an invasive presence in human nature. And like a virus, it has been transmitted to all descendants of Adam and Eve. And the result is that the original righteousness of God's creation has been dangerously impaired, but not destroyed altogether. And the work of Jesus on the cross is that He's, he's resolving this problem. That the, the problem is that sin has become part of human nature. It's maybe even a second nature, right? It's second nature to us. Um, so by becoming truly human and living a truly human life free from sin, and by uniting human nature with the divine in one flesh... Jesus was and is able to represent all of humanity and is able to offer a restoration of human nature to what it was originally intended to be. Jesus goes to the root of the problem, which is that human nature is distorted by sin, and he fixes it. So now we talk about salvation. Now there's a whole lovely sermon that Wesley preaches called The Scripture Way of Salvation, which boils down to you are saved by grace through faith. But he goes to expound on what this means. So we need to expound on what this means. Now, saving faith, we want to be clear, is not faith in um, human moral virtue or human institutions. And it is not faith that acknowledges who Jesus is without accepting his lordship. Saving faith must both believe in who Jesus is and accept his authority as Lord. It is the, the total trust in God, casting your whole life on the truth of God made manifest in the risen Christ. And faith is a gift of grace. It is the disposition of the whole heart, mind, strength, and will to receive grace joyfully. Grace, in fact, is what makes faith possible. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, And so our faith saves us from the power of present sin. It saves us from the guilt of past sin and the fear of future punishment. It saves us from habitual sin, willful sin, and sins resulting from human weakness. These sins may remain in us, but they no longer reign in us because sin loses its power. Sin is not just a bad choice. It's not just a breaking of the rules. It is an evil force. It's an inner compulsion, which can and does rule over us if we let it. This is the result of idolatry. We surrender our power as God's image bearers in the world to those things which we worship. When we bow down to our idols, we surrender our power to them. We give them power over us, and faith in Christ shatters this power. Now, salvation is not a singular event. You don't just pray the sinner's prayer and then you're good to go forever. It's not, It doesn't work like that. We must continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, understanding that our justification can be lost if we are unwilling to continue striving for perfection in Christ. Now, let's acknowledge that for many people, justification would come slowly as this as a growing process that gradually leads to a fuller response to god's grace now a lot of us who've been raised in the church and in christian families will have experienced that we sort of slowly we maybe can't point to one particular moment in our lives where okay yes this is the moment where i gave myself to jesus but we can see a long process over many years where we where we sort of have fallen in love with jesus over a long time um But he also believed and celebrated the fact that God could bring a person to such faith in a moment. And that this is exactly what he does in moments of revival. Now I'm using this word justification rather than salvation because uh, it's an important distinction. Justification is what God does for us on the cross. Our sins are atoned for. Our guilt is wiped out. We are declared righteous before God. It's a verdict declared in our favor. It doesn't make us behaviorally righteous. We still have work to do on that front. We are declared righteous. We are justified the moment we have faith in Jesus Christ. Specifically, in the moment that we truly believe that Christ died for me, we are justified. So now we come to the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. Now, Wesley was a very charismatic man. Um, You you may not realize this, but the Pentecostal churches and movements, those all sprung out of Methodism. Um, And if you read Wesley's work, and you especially read his diaries and his letters about his experiences, he was a very charismatic man, very much focused on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, which we don't do much in modern Methodism, and we need to. Now, the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who enlightens our understanding, rectifies our will and our affections, renews our nature, unites us to Christ, and assures us of our adoption as sons and daughters of God, and leads us in our actions and sanctifies us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. And in this way, by the way, we fulfill the same function As the temple in Jerusalem did, we become the place where heaven and earth meet and the glorious presence of God dwells. The Spirit guides us and draws us into holiness. And through the Spirit, we enjoy life with God both now and forever. Now, true, genuine, scriptural Christianity requires that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we neglect this truth, Christianity becomes merely the form of religion with none of its power. Being filled with the Spirit and receiving the spiritual gifts like prophecy, tongues, healing, words of knowledge, etc. um, is not something that is reserved for a special few or special times. It is meant to be the ordinary reality of all Christians. John Wesley insisted on this point. Because it is only through the work of the Spirit that the community of faith can be transformed and can then work with God to transform the world. It's not enough to be educated. It's not enough to know the scriptures and know the doctrines of the church. We must be filled with the Spirit and the modern malaise in the United Methodist Church and other denominations is almost entirely due to a flat-out rejection of the works and person of the Holy Spirit. You cannot underestimate the importance of charismatic theology in Wesley's own thought and in the history of Methodism. Time and time again in his diaries he references these moments of incredible charismatic prayer where the Spirit moves and People, early Methodists, sometimes including Wesley, began praying in tongues. That makes you uncomfortable, doesn't it? But it happened. He recorded it. We've got to start actually really wrestling with what that means for us. So now we move on to grace. Possibly the most distinctive feature of Wesleyan theology is this idea of the threefold grace of God. First, there is preceding grace or prevenient grace, or sometimes he called it preventing grace. This is the grace which prepares our hearts for faith. God's preventing grace reaches out into the world, mitigating the effects of original sin and making it possible for us to respond in faith to God. Without this grace, we would be wholly lost, incapable of recognizing the goodness of God or of responding to him in faith. This grace seeks to coax the sinner to repentance. So even now, those you love who live in sin are experiencing this grace, which will always seek to draw them in. Now, we are free to reject this grace, but our rejection of it does not stop the work of preventing grace. The door will always stand open. Then there's justifying grace, and this is the grace which calls us to put our trust in the one who died for our sins. When we put our faith in Jesus, when we truly believe in him, that he died for us and rose again, we receive justifying grace. This grace wipes out the guilt for all our sins and enables us to stand righteous before the throne of God. And then there is sanctifying grace, and in the same moment we are justified, we also receive sanctifying grace. If prevenient grace is the work of the Father calling people to repentance, if justifying grace is the work of the Son on the cross, sanctifying grace is the work of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. With this grace, we are saved from the root of sin, and our nature is restored to holiness. This is the grace that works with us to root out the sin in our lives and to become ever more like Christ. Now, go into more detail about all these. Wesley denied that free will exists apart from God's grace. In other words, original sin has so corrupted us that we do not have free will. We are utterly and wholly enslaved to our sin. We are incapable of choosing good. We are incapable of rejecting our sins on our own. We have surrendered all our ability to choose to those idols we have bowed down to. But God's prevenient grace is at work in the world, mitigating the effects of original sin. And it is God's prevenient grace which gives us free will. Now this spirit is repeating. If it were not for God's grace, we would not have free will at all. We would be utterly enslaved to our sin. God's grace at work in the world, even before we put our faith in God, God's grace gives us the freedom to choose. It's God's grace that gives us the freedom to choose God or reject God. And because God's grace is at work everywhere and in everyone, all human beings are capable of doing good things. This is a really big contrast from, like, the Calvinist doctrine of total depravity, which just says that everyone's totally depraved until they put their faith in Jesus. Wesley says, no, 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 no. God's grace is at work in everyone, even before they put their faith in God. So even those who have no faith in God are capable of doing good things because God's grace is mitigating the effect of original sin. And it is that grace which gives us free will the freedom to choose God or to reject God. It also means that all human good is only done by the grace of God, whether the person believes in God or not. Now, God's grace is offered freely to all who will receive it, but God does not force his grace on anyone. This means that Wesley does not believe in predestination, and neither do we. So Wesley approaches the the passages in the Paul's letters that seem to imply predestination, and, and he says that actually what's happening here is that God has foreknowledge of those who will freely choose him and those who will freely reject him. This is not the same thing as claiming that God determines who is saved and who is damned. It simply means that because God is eternal and God is outside of time as we understand it, God knows in advance who will freely choose him and who will freely reject him, but the choice is still ours to make. He still gives us the freedom to choose. Foreknowledge is not the same thing as predetermination. Because God is eternal, God is simultaneously aware of all events in time. So God does not at all, God does not create persons just to condemn them. But he does know who is going to reject his offer of grace and who will accept it. This is what Paul means in those texts that when he says things about who those who God foreknew and who the elect are and all of this stuff. It's about God knows who's going to accept him and who will not. That does not mean that our choices don't matter. And in fact, all of scripture implies very, very strongly that human agency and human choice is extremely important. And Wesley believes firmly that it's God's grace at work in the world, God's prevenient grace, his preceding grace, his preventing grace, which goes out from God into the world to push back the effects of original sin and allow us the freedom to choose God. Now once we choose God, we have um, regeneration or new birth or being born again. This is the outworking of God's justifying grace in us. Justification brings the believers, it changes the believers' relation to God. New birth changes the believers' motivation and the disposition of the soul. So justification restores us to God's favor. It restores us to the image of God. It removes the guilt of sin. It removes the power of sin. In the moment we are justified, we are born again. Something within us is fundamentally different. We are now a new kind of person who is now receptive to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And thus begins our sanctification. Now, sanctification has been held up by many as a unique Wesleyan idea, but it's not. It dates back to the apostles themselves. It was a core doctrine of the early church. Um, which has been largely lost in the Western church, even though it's very clearly present in the theology of Luther and Calvin and the other reformers as well. Um, Now Wesley insisted that the Holy Spirit um, wasn't just working to make us more like Christ, but that the Holy Spirit intends to transform our behavior completely, to perfect us. And he fully believed that this could and would happen before our death. He believed that those who are made perfect in love were freed from evil thoughts, um, right? And they were that they were freed from temptation, not that they are freed from the challenge of temptation, but that they now have the grace to resist temptation perfectly. And to be clear, this is not a static perfection, right? Achieving something on which there can be no improvement, because that would make us essentially like God. It is a better word for it is perfecting grace the constant state of being the most excellent Christian one has ever been, knowing that there is room for improvement still because we are not God. It's a never-ending aspiration for all of love's fullness. And, he, and in this idea, he is deeply, deeply influenced by the Eastern Church Fathers and by Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Now, Christian perfection is not freedom from ignorance, you will still be ignorant of things. It's not freedom from mistakes. You will still make mistakes. And it's not freedom from temptation. It is... Um, Christian perfection is perfection appropriate to our stage in life, both our physical age and our maturity in faith. It is a process. The new believer can be perfect in love while still being not as far along in holiness as one who has been a Christian for decades. It is a dynamic Perfecting grace, not a static perfection. It's a continuing process of growth in grace that has multiple moments of completion and fulfillment. So, Jesus, I mean, Wesley goes to Jesus' parables and pulls out this image of planting a seed, right? The seed is planted in a moment, but its growth is a process over time. The seed of every virtue is instantaneously planted in the soul, and from that moment on, the believer gradually dies to sin. And grows in grace. So the idea of Christian perfection. Is is to be the best Christian. You've ever been every day. If that makes sense. Understanding that you will always have room to grow. But he's very insistent. By the way that. That you don't sin. If you sin, you've taken a step backwards. You'll still face temptation to sin. You'll still make mistakes. You might say you still sin by accident. But you're no longer willfully sinning. You've been made perfect in love. Let's talk about baptism and communion. We believe that these are not just symbolic acts. They're not just remembrances. That they are means of grace. In baptism and communion, God, the Holy Spirit, is powerfully active and present in a way he is not active elsewhere. Now, baptism is our initiation into the body of Christ. It is instituted by Jesus himself in the Gospels. To awaken grace in our hearts, and through baptism, further grace is given. Now, baptism is an act of God, not an act of man. So we only baptize once. We don't re-baptize people. And we recognize the validity of baptism in any denomination. And because baptism is an act of God, and is fundamentally about the grace of God entering into our lives, there's no need to wait until a person is old enough to make their own decision. Baptism is not about professing our faith, and it's not about a decision we've made, it's about God and what God is doing. Um, Baptism is how we enter into the new covenant with Jesus. This is why we have confirmation classes, by the way, because you're baptized as an infant, and then you still have a, a, a later period in life where you need to make a decision for Christ. So we have confirmation later on. Now, communion is likewise something which is instituted by God. Jesus commands his followers to do this in remembrance of me. And from the very earliest days of the church, the Lord's Supper was celebrated not as a mere remembrance, but as a means of receiving God's grace and a practice which was essential for sanctification. Because our lives are never free from temptation, Satan is constantly seeking to turn us away, and we therefore need constant reminders of God's provision and grace, and Christ provides this for us from himself at the Lord's table. This is a spiritual meal. God provides nourishment for our souls in the Lord's Supper. So Holy Communion is a tangible, palpable sign of God's constant provision and care for us, and because of this, when we receive it, we are receiving God's sanctifying grace. Now, given the importance of communion, it's a channel of grace, it's a pardon for our sins, it's a reminder of God's provision, we are encouraged to partake of it as often as we can. Wesley himself took communion at least once a week when he could, and sometimes more frequently. The only reason we do it once a month is because there was a period in time when you might only have your pastor at your church once a month, and the other three weeks of the month he was riding around to to the other churches in his circuit. So we've kept that tradition alive, and we really ought to be reconsidering how often we do communion. Because if we really do believe the things we say we believe about communion, we ought to celebrate it every Sunday. In instituting communion, Jesus made a direct connection between his body and blood given in sacrifice to pardon our sins, and the bread and wine we consume at the table. So we understand communion to be a channel by which we receive God's grace and his pardon, both the forgiveness of our sins and the power to overcome them. It's a stream of mercy flowing into our hearts. Now, let's talk a bit about some more practical things. Ethics and society. Let's talk about. First, let's talk about what Wesley defined as the character of a Methodist. I'm going to sum this up. There is a whole sermon, by the way, called The Character of a Methodist, if you ever want to want to read it. But you can sum it up as a, a Methodist is one in whom fear has been cast out by love, and they have peace in God. They give thanks to God in all things and are content in all circumstances. They pray without ceasing their hearts are filled with love for God and others. Their lives display the fruits of the Spirit. They do all to the glory of God, and they do good to all they meet. Now you could say, simply, that that is um, that's what a Christian is supposed to be. Right? Um, so in a sense, the character of a Methodist is the character of a Christian. But it's good to remind ourselves of that. Um, Now, having laid out what the character of a Methodist is, Wesley felt it important to help his Methodists live out that lifestyle and, and, and figure out ways to make sure they were being held accountable for being that sort of person. And to that end, He created the general rules. And I'm just going to read. I'm going to read. These are the general rules of the Methodist Church. That it may the more easily be discerned whether they are indeed working out their own salvation. Each society is divided into smaller companies called classes. Classes according to their respective places of abode there are about 12 persons in a class one of whom is styled the leader it is his duty to 1 see that each person see each person in his class once a week at least in order to inquire how their souls prosper to advise reprove comfort or exhort as occasion may require to receive what they are willing to give toward the relief of the preachers the church and the poor and two, to meet the ministers and the stewards of the society once a week in order to inform the minister of any that are sick or of any that walk disorderly and will not be reproved, and to pay the stewards what they have received of their several classes in the week preceding. It is therefore expected of all who continue therein that they should continue to evidence their desire of salvation first by doing no harm, By avoiding evil of every kind, especially that which is most generally practiced, such as the taking of the name of God in vain, the profaning of the day of the Lord, either by doing ordinary work or by buying or selling, drunkenness, buying or selling spiritist liquors or drinking them, unless in cases of extreme necessity, which I love. I'm so glad he didn't define what a case of extreme necessity is. Um, Now, I'll also point out, Uh, Wesley was not a teetotaler. He drank beer and wine. His problem with with hard liquor, which is what spiritist liquors are, had to do with the fact that he was alive during the Industrial Revolution in England, which was a time when alcoholism was rampant. And uh, it was was quite common for children to go hungry because Dad had spent all of his wages on gin. Uh, And so he had a huge ethical problem with hard liquor during that day and age. And this is something that comes up again in Methodism in the United States after the Civil War when there was a similar surge in alcoholism. And the Methodist Church then became a leading part of the Prohibition Movement and was fundamental in having alcohol banned in the United States. And if you're wondering, the guy who started Welch's Grape Juice was in fact a Methodist, and that's why we use Welch's Grape Juice to this day. Um... We don't forbid Methodists from drinking hard liquor anymore. We do encourage, you know, avoiding drunkenness. Um, So moving on, Methodists were also forbidden from slaveholding, the buying or selling of slaves. And let's just pause for a minute and remind you that this is being put out in the 18th century when slaveholding is not just legal, but it's assumed to be an ordinary part of the economy. If you're going to avoid buying or selling slaves, um, you're going to be... uh, it, it's a majorly countercultural ask there. Uh, they were to refrain from fighting, quarreling, brawling, brother going to law with brother, returning evil for evil, or railing for railing, the using of many words in buying or selling. I love that one. Don't use many words in buying or selling. Um, in other words, don't act like a used car salesman. Uh, by the way, another, another little note on the slave slaveholding and the, the being forbidden from buying or selling slaves. Um, we have clearly not always done a good job of upholding that particular rule because there was a split in the Methodist Church over the issue of slaveholding and the Methodist Episcopal Church South split off so that they could continue owning slaves. Uh, not good. He prohibited from the giving or taking of things on usury, which is unlawful interest the uh, uncharitable or unprofitable conversation, particularly speaking evil of magistrates or of ministers, doing to others as we would not they should do unto us, doing what we know is not for the glory of God, such as the putting on of gold and costly apparel, the taking of such diversions as cannot be used in the name of the Lord Jesus, the the singing of those songs or reading those books, which do not tend to the knowledge or love of God. Now, I would say he did not mean you can only enjoy music or books or entertainment which is explicitly Christian. Uh, I think he simply recognizes that there are uh, books, music, other enter- entertainment which, which affects us in ways that draw us away from God. And that there are secular songs, secular books, secular entertainment which are not explicitly religious which nonetheless um, do not draw us away from God. And it's about you having to ter- determine that on your own. He forbade softness and needless self-indulgence, the laying up of treasure on earth, borrowing without a probability of paying. Um, yeah. So that's the stuff you're not supposed to do. And you can see it's quite extensive. Um, and in a way, it's ahead of its time. He forbade slaveholding in the 1700s. Um, Next he goes, so that's what you don't do, but, but so first, firstly, do no harm. Secondly, by doing good, by being in every kind, merciful after their power, as they have opportunity, doing good of every possible sort, and as far as possible to all men. To their bodies, of the ability which God giveth, by giving food to the hungry, by clothing the naked, by visiting or helping them that are sick or in prison. To their souls, by instructing, reproving, or exhorting all we have any intercourse with, trampling underfoot that enthusiastic doctrine that we are not to do good unless our hearts be free to it. By doing good, especially to them that are of the household of faith or groaning so to be, employing them preferably to others, buying one of another, helping each other in business, and so much the more, because the world will love its own and them only. So, giving preferential treatment to Christian businesses. By all possible diligence and frugality that the gospel not be blamed. By running with patience the race which is set before them, denying themselves, and taking up their cross daily, submitting to bear the reproach of Christ. It is expected of all who desire to continue in these years. So that's, that's now thirdly, by the way, by attending upon all the ordinances of God, such as the public worship of God, the ministry of the word, either read or expounded, the supper of the Lord, communion, family and private prayer, searching the scriptures, fasting or abstinence, These are the general rules of our societies, all of which are taught of God to observe, even in his written word, which is the only rule and the sufficient rule both of our faith and practice. And all these we know his spirit writes on truly awakened hearts. If there be any among us who observe them not, who habitually break any of them, let it be known unto them who watch over that soul, as they who must give an account. We will admonish him of the error of his ways, we will bear with him for a season, but then... If he repent not, he hath no more place among us. We have delivered our own souls. Um, These are still, by the way, in our book of discipline. You can find them online. But these are the behavioral requirements for Methodism. And for much of Methodist history, if you violated them, and you continue to violate them after being rebuked for it, you were booted out of the church. So the standards are high. Wesley sets high, high standards for his people. Um, And and when you really dig into him, what you see is that he's thinking through every aspect of our life and how the gospel ought to change that part of our life. How we spend our free time, how we operate our business, uh, how we spend our money, how we talk to people, the kinds of conversations that we have. All of it is influenced and all of it is covered under the general rules. Now, in order to help people not just adhere to the general rules, but to ensure that other people were there to help them hold accountable, he insisted on these small group meetings that he called class meetings. Now, the class meeting, very different from a modern small group. Um, Most of our small groups that we tend to form are information-driven groups like Sunday School and Bible Studies, And the problem with these groups, the assumption behind them, is that knowledge is essential for maturity in faith and that right living depends on right knowing. And the problem is that while these groups are extremely important and they have a place within the Christian life, you do need to know the Bible, you do need to know doctrine, they they don't actually help us to become more mature Christians. The thing is, doctrine and theology are hugely important. There's no question about that. Doctrine gives us boundaries and direction to help us discern what we should and shouldn't do. It gives us the guidelines that we need in order to live a Christian life, but we still have to go out and live it. Um, Most of us already know quite a bit. In fact, most of us, I would guarantee, we all know far more than we actually put into practice. So we don't need more information. What we need is transformation. And the class meeting is meant to provide transformation. In the class meeting, people actively discuss the state of their current relationship with God and how they are living out or failing to live out their faith. The class meeting requires you to talk about yourself and your behavior and evaluate how good you're doing or where you're falling short. Now, class meetings were essential to the Methodist revival. Okay? In 1776, Methodists made up about 2.4% of the Christians in America. By 1850, that number had risen to 34.5%. And during that time, every Methodist was expected to be in a class meeting every week. It was a firm requirement. To be a Methodist meant that you were in a class meeting. If you didn't consistently attend your class meeting... You were removed from membership. And in fact, for quite a while, you got a ticket when you went to your class meeting. And you needed to bring that ticket with you on Sunday morning. And if you didn't have your ticket when you showed up on Sunday morning, you weren't allowed into worship. So they took this very, very seriously. And the basic idea is that in our class meetings, we watch over one another in love. we watch over one another in love. Each class had between 7 and 12 people. It was mixed gender. It was mixed ages. The groups were formed based on where you lived. So these were your neighbors, the people down the street. Um, The class meeting did three things. It held people accountable to the general rules. It took up a collection for the poor. And most importantly, and the thing you'd spend the most time on is, every Methodist would answer the question, how is it with your soul? So the group would open up with prayer, they'd sing a song or two, and then the class leader would begin asking people one by one some version of how does your soul prosper? How is it with your soul? A modern version of this would be how is your life with God? How have you experienced God? Sometimes the leader or others in the group would then ask a follow-up question or they'd offer encouragement or advice or a rebuke because part of the purpose is to hold people accountable. But basically, each person in the group is sharing their testimony of their experience with God during the past week. And it was not unheard of for people to be converted at a class meeting. Because they're hearing the testimony of these people about what God is doing in their life. It happened. And in addition to the class meeting, you also had the band meeting. And the band meeting was smaller, about four to five people, all male or all female. And in the band meeting, you confessed your sins to one another. And after you've confessed your sins, you're then asked, is there any sin which you want to hide from the group? Tough stuff. And after you've confessed your sins, the rest of the group pronounces to you that in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven, and they pray over you. So, a core part of the Methodist movement was meeting with people once a week to share where you saw God at in your life, how you experienced God, what you thought God was telling you, how you thought he was communicating to you, and then to confess your sins to each other. And this is how... They systematically ensured that the Methodists were being sanctified, that they were pursuing God, that they were living righteously in between church services. I think you can see that this is a practice that we really have to reclaim if we want to have any hope of Methodism being a, a vital growing movement again. If there is one thing that is actually extremely distinctive about Methodist theology. It is the band meeting and the class meeting. Because they take the theology of Methodism and they make it practical. They provide the connection point between belief and practice. Methodism is fundamentally about Holiness. And there is a core belief that we cannot be holy on our own. Wesley said there is no holiness but social holiness. And that's often been wildly misinterpreted to be some sort of statement about social justice. It's not. Um, Although Wesley clearly felt that social justice was important. Um, But that particular statement is actually about the need for us to pursue holiness together with a community that will hold each other accountable and give each other the strength and the encouragement that, it, that is needed to continue on to perfection in Christ. And that is Methodism. This is a high-level overview. Obviously, there's lots of stuff we've sort of skipped over. We didn't cover history very much. But this gives you a good idea of what is distinctive about Methodism and the sorts of things that Methodists have to reclaim if we want to have any hope of our churches being vital and relevant again. That's all for today. We'll be back next week.